As Stephen said, we're going to be reading from Revelations 5, 1 to 10. It's in page 869 if you have one of our booklets, our Bibles. While you're finding that, may I just tell you, remind you about the recipe book that we've talked about. Um, on the tables today where the pot lunch is going to be, there will also be some slips there that you can fill in. We've had good response to that, but I'd really like to grow it because I'd like this to be a book that we can give away as gifts at Christmas time to our friends to let them know we're here. So let's now read the Word of God. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Well, it's great to be with you and uh, it does take me back. It's beautiful. Um, Seeing the kids uh, and um, engaging with them, we would. Um, they're all in classrooms. I'm assuming is that what's happened? They've disappeared off to classrooms. Uh, yeah, we used to um, we used to rent a school hall where to go out to the classrooms. If it was raining, there was the gutters were always broken, and so there'd just be this torrent of water over the doors. And so it was, the kids thought it was the best thing. They came to church for it and the parents hated it. So we had this constant little tension about, but uh, the kids would be soaked. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad we were there for when we were there, but I'm glad we're not there anymore. So I don't know how that one works out for you guys, but. Well, here you go. I want to talk to you about, um, those kind of words from Revelation chapter five. And I want to do it in the light of encouraging you in the context you're in. Uh, especially in the context of kind of moving into a church plant scene, the way you're going here and so on and the work that it takes. And I want to encourage you in that. Looking at the book of Revelation is a part of the Bible that does freak many people out. Um, in the midst of a lot of stuff that's really weird, yeah, and lots of stuff that's really strange, what do you make of it? Now, in the midst of all of that, there are some parts that are not so weird and strange. And so I've chosen that bit this morning. Uh, that's a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more easy to get hold on. And actually, what I want to do with you, I'll tell you exactly what I want to do with you. If you've got your Bibles, make sure you've got them there in Revelation 5. Look at verse 9. See in verse 9, there's the word new. See the word new? 
That's what the whole sermon's about this morning. That word, new. And I'm here to tell you what it means. <laughs> you need someone from the East Coast to tell you what the word new means. No, no, what I want to do is tell you, I mean, you know what the word new means. I want to tell you what the word new means in that context. And I want to suggest to you that if you can understand what that word means in its context, that word new, wow, it, it uh, is revolutionary. It actually opens up a whole way of seeing life in a profoundly different way. And it's quite extraordinary. So keep your eyes there in verse 9, because that's where I'm going to get to, but I want to put it in context to help you understand what it's about. You see, if we're going to understand what it means there, we've got to understand the whole picture. So what's the context? Well, the context is the book of Revelation, obviously. And the book of Revelation is a revealing. It's God drawing the curtain back on existence and showing us what's behind the visible. Now, the world around you can see... But what's going on behind it in the spiritual realm? That's what the book of Revelation does for us. And uh, it's a great encouragement. When you see the curtains pull back, just to have a quick look at some of it in chapter 4, let's, we won't go too far back, but in chapter 4, what you see in verse uh, 2, let's start there. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. So when you pull the curtain back, what do you see? A throne in heaven. That behind the visible is the throne of God. And he's on a throne that's exalted, it's extraordinary. Um, there was someone sitting on it. The one who sat there, verse 3, had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone like, the emerald, like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold. It's a glorious scene. Verse 5, the throne flashed with lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder um, in front of the throne and so on. There's this extraordinary picture. And then verse 6, you've got around the throne of four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and back. So you've got this image of uh, the throne in heaven. Um, right immediately around it, I take it, the four living creatures, extraordinary creatures. And then 24 elders around them in a big circle. Um, and the vision that God gives John is that um, each time these creatures, um, uh, you can see there, have a look in verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is to come. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. What you've got is this picture of praise. The centre, God, the four living creatures, every time they praise, verse 9, the 24 elders fall down in praise. And then, in fact, if you look a little bit further along, chapter 5, verse 11 you see many thousands of angels, tens of thousands of angels, they're praising in a loud voice. And then you come down to verse 13 and you've got every creature in heaven and earth praising God. And, and the vision is this, that despite circumstances for John and us today, God rules. God's at the centre and all is right as he intends. And the universe is praising God. 
like this kind of Mexican wave of praise. There's this, uh, it starts in the centre of the throne, it rolls out into every living creature, then back into the centre. It's an extraordinarily helpful picture. And it's actually encouraging just by the by. This is, not, this is just a quick by the by. Whatever the circumstances of your life are, and people are living through some very difficult things amongst us, um, be assured that God is ruling and that John was encouraged by this vision. We can be encouraged by this vision and take heart that God's got you. He's got you in his hands and things are moving as he purposes. Difficult as it is sometimes to understand. Now, there's a particular shape to the praise that's offered. Have a look again at verse 11, chapter 4. You boil it down. Why is God worthy to receive glory, honour and power? Just a comprehension question. You look at verse 11. Why is God worthy to receive glory, honour and power? What is it? Because he created all things. Do you see that? So it's a simple thing. Um, You're worthy, our Lord, and God receive glory and honour and power because you created all things. Um, Now, when you come to chapter 5, something extraordinary happens. Something astonishing. Something breaks the pattern of eternity. Now, chapter 5 starts with tension in the throne room. The scroll is in the hand of God. Uh, He sees, chapter 5, verse 1, the one on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And there's this problem. Verse 2, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven on earth, under earth, could be found to open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. Now, what is all of that about? I take it opening the scroll is actually opening... God's purpose is to continue to move forward um, and there's no one found who can open God's purposes and move them forward and so John is devastated, he weeps. How can we see God's plans go ahead? Um, well, the tensions eventually resolve because a wonderful declaration is made that there is one who is worthy. Look at five, then one of the elders said to me, don't weep, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. He's able to move things forward. There is someone who is powerful and worthy enough to move things forward. Um, Well, he turns out, of course, to be, verse 6, I looked for this one and I turn and see a lamb looking as though it's been slain. One of the great jarring images you'll ever find in the Bible, isn't it? There, there is the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the triumphant one, the conquering one. He turns to see who this one is and he sees a dead sheep. <laughs> Actually, not even a whole full-grown sheep. It's quite an extraordinary image. Have you ever been told about someone who does amazing things and kind of an extraordinary person and uh, you finally get to meet them? Paul Harrington. You know, you hear all this stuff about Paul Harrington years ago. I mean, I've known him now for some time, but you hear all this stuff and you kind of finally meet the man and you kind of, oh. I thought you'd be bigger. (laughs) But, uh, you you know, it's, um, I've heard about this triumphant ruler of the universe and I turned to look at him and he's a lamb looking as though it's been slain. It's an extraordinary image. Um, it's so out of step. Except that you learn this. The thing that made 
Jesus great, the thing that is worthy of glory in God's universe, the thing that makes someone powerful in God's universe is sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. The humbly, the humble giving of yourself as Jesus did. That's a beautiful truth, isn't it? That Philippians chapter 2, um, you know, though equal with God, he made himself nothing, became um, humbled even all the way down to death, uh, death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the place that's the highest place, with the name above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Why is he exalted? Because he humbled himself. Friends, again, this is not the point of the sermon, but it's hard to go past. The thing that makes people great in God's universe, not our small part, in God's universe is humble sacrificial service in obedience to the will of God. Not your sporting prowess, not your career success, that's a nothing. Now, we're still not there. We come a few verses later to the heart of the passage, or at least the thing I want to point out. Upon seeing this new figure, you come now down to verse 9, and a new song is sung. And the new song is there in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you created all things, and with your blood... You purchased for God persons from every tribe, language and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Now just unpack that for a moment. I mean, it's not again the main point of this morning, but the, just unpack that for a moment. The thing that makes Jesus worthy is that he was slain. Now that's a statement of fact. Outside Jerusalem, Jesus just was killed. That's a fact of history. But what follows is an insight into the fact that death of Jesus achieved something it achieved the purchasing of men and women from every tribe language people and nation and made them God's priests and a kingdom to serve him God's death Jesus's death has achieved an extraordinary thing you know men and women and children die every day and it's a tragic reality death is part of our existence and at this level Jesus's death is like every other human death he shed his blood brutally But something happened in his death that has happened in no human death. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. He died precisely because a transfer occurred. Your guilt was laid upon him, the, the spotless lamb. And he dies so that you don't have to. Extraordinary truth. God has purchased you for himself. He died so that we don't have to. Biblical Christianity, and again, this is not the main point of the sermon, but biblical Christianity is not about you getting better and somehow hoping to attain merit to get to God. Biblical Christianity is that Jesus was good enough for you. He's done it all for you. So that by his gift you can be right. With all of that as background. Now note verse 9, the word new. Let's get right to it. This song, verse 9 and 10, is called a new song. Now, 
the word new song, the, the word, the phrase new song is not a new phrase in the Bible. It's, you've been using the Bible before. You get it in Psalm 98 and Isaiah 42, just for a couple of spots. And um, when you look at those places, you see something important. The, the, the language of new song is not just used to simply refer to a song that's new. All right? There's a big point. When, when I was converted into a little church at North Manly, um, whenever the song leader introduced a new song, they'd read Psalm 98 and they'd say, the Bible says to sing a new song, so we're going to learn a new song today. And I go, oh, okay, the Bible says to do it, let's do it. But when you actually look at Psalm 98 and Isaiah 42, that's not the point they're making. They're not saying to sing a song that's not been sung before. Yes, they are saying to sing a new song, but... If you look, chase it down later. Isaiah 42, have a look at verse 5, 9, 5 to 9, 10. And what you'll find is a new song is sung because it represents a new stage in history. That's the big point. A new song is sung because it represents a new stage in God's history. In Revelation 5 verse 9 and 10, they sang a new song in heaven. Now, yes, it was a song that hadn't been sung before. It was new. But I've got to tell you, it wasn't as if the 24 elders were all hanging out at morning tea time after church going, man, if I have to sing Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 one more time, I'm going to kill someone. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're not going, if I have to go through that whole... You are worthy because you created all things one more time. I'm just not going to do it. I mean, it's a new tune at least. You know, they're not, they're not complaining. They were happy for all eternity to sing Revelation 4.11. It was a song worthy of being sung forever. They'd been doing it gladly because it was so important and wonderful. No, the reason a new song is sung, not because they were sick of the old one, but because something new has happened in the universe. The new song marked a new stage in the movement of eternity. The song that had been sung for all eternity has now been eclipsed and a new song is now sung in heaven. Get that. The pattern of eternity changed. Now, we're the change culture. We change things because we can. We get bored if we don't. But the old song, song was worthy of being sung forever. God will always be worthy of being praised because he created all things. That, that song changes to a new one is of immense significance. And that's my point this morning. That's the whole point of this morning's sermon. A new song is sung in heaven. What could cause such a change? In heaven itself. This takes us to the heart of the passage, actually. What causes a new song to be sung in heaven? What causes the pattern of eternity to change? The death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. Actually, not just the death of Jesus. The humble sacrifice of the Lamb to save men and women for God. Do you see the implications of that? 
it's Sunday morning, I don't see anything. Let me give them to you. Here's three implications that flow from it. When you, get, when you grasp the truth of that, I'll give you the three things that flow. The first one is this. You see anew the worth of Jesus. The event of the cross pushes the wonder of creation to one side. The event of the cross pushes the wonder of creation to one side. Creation is astonishing. Salvation, actually the manner of salvation, the self-giving love of the Son of God, the fact that he gave himself up to be slain by taking on himself the sin of the world in humble service to the will of his loving Father who desired salvation, that Jesus did that makes him worthy of a new song of eternal praise of the heavens. Now, it may not be saying something amazing in you to say that Jesus is worthy, but what I might be doing among you this morning is showing you the worth of Jesus from another perspective. I, um, I was in the UK some years ago, and I um, was staying with a friend who uh, said to me, I was staying there for a few nights, and he said, look, one of the, you know, one of the, tonight we've got um, a guest coming, so you, you know, we'll, there'll be others staying here for the night. And uh, you need to know he's, um, he's a, a, a famous football player. And I said, oh, he plays rugby. No, no, he's a famous football, he's a soccer player. Oh, a soccer player, all right. He's a famous soccer player. So we, um, so I came down to dinner and he's this, this little man sitting at the table, talking with the boys in the house about uh, how to spin a ball and how to, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I sat at the dinner table and chatted and um, we then were going off to the pub the pub, and uh, we got in the car together. He sat next to me in the back seat, and he's a bit smelly jacket. And I'm, who is this bloke? And and uh, we get to the pub, and you know, I'm ringing my ears as the words of Steve. He's a famous soccer player, and so on. And we we get to the pub. We walk as soon as we walk in the door, every eye in the pub turned to look at me, at him. <laughs> kind of, I was sure they were looking at me, but no, every everyone stopped. And looked at this bloke as we walked in. And I went, huh. And we walked in, and all the blokes in the public bar, you know, you got the, they all came out of the public bar into the other part, and they all gathered around him. And he ended up on a stage sharing stories about professional league. His name was David Beck, David Beckham or something like this. Has anyone heard of him? No, it, was, it wasn't actually David Beckham, but um, it was someone, he was the captain of a Premier League team. He was, the, uh, he was a famous reporter. He, was, he, he had to move countries because of all the media attention he got. He, and when I saw him in that new context, when I saw him at the dinner table, I thought, huh. But when I saw him in a new context, I went, oh, <laughs> famous. Now, here's my point. You may have heard of Jesus, but were you aware that the thing that happened 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem shook the earth, caused the heavens to change their song? something the angels have longed to look into. Anything that minimises or diminishes or crowds out the cross of Jesus ought to, ought to offend us deeply, ought to outrage us greatly. Works theology does that. Um, there's the first thing, the worth of Jesus when you see the language of new song. I'll give you the second thing. The need that we have to be saved the need that we have to be saved. If it, such, if it took such a work to purchase men and women for God, 
if the cost of God's own son was required, it means our only hope for salvation is found in the cross of Jesus. Now let me explain this. I'll give you an illustration. Have you ever heard of a man called Ralston? He was um, Aaron Ralston. He was a rock climber, canyoner in, um, in America. Has anyone heard that name? Um, he, um, he was canyoning in, um, in a very isolated part of America and um, climbing down a rock. And as he climbed down a rock, a massive boulder rolled onto his hand and pinned him there. And uh, he uh, tried for five and a half days to dislodge his hand and couldn't. Now, he's in such an isolated place, no one comes. This is just a canyon with no one there, right? And so after five and a half days, he, he bends his forearm. I'm sorry. <laughs> he bends his forearm to break the bones in his forearm and then uses a, an old penknife that he had to cut off his arm. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and now I'm going to show you a photo of my foot. <laughs> um, and cuts off his arm. And then hikes... I don't know what, a thousand miles or something and swims across an ocean and gets home. Do you know, it's some incredible story. And, uh, he now, he's written a book, I think it's called 125 Hours or something like this, whatever the hours are. Um, that's an extraordinary story. He's on the speaking tour, so he does the motivational speaking tour in the place through America. But just imagine this, with all of that background. Imagine this. This is now hypothetical. He's at a speaking event, a motion of but and he gives his story. He tells about all this thing and how incredible you can do anything if you just, excuse me, try hard like I did. You know, that's the kind of thing. Um, but someone comes up to him afterwards and says, um, I think I might know that canyon where you were. Oh, really? Does it look like this? Yeah, it looks like that. Um, and uh, is the, the shape of the wall like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that place. And is the rock that fell on your hand, does it look like this, this and this? He said, yes, that's exactly the rock. And then the man says this to him, did you know that if you just lever it this way, it rolls back? Now, how do you think Aaron's thinking, feeling at this stage? Oh, dang, if only I'd known that, I wouldn't have cut my arm off. Yeah, but here's the deal. That story wouldn't happen. I'll tell you why it wouldn't happen. Because what do you think he spent five and a half days doing? Trying every single way possible to get that rock to move. In fact, it took 12 men to come back a month later to dislodge the rock to get his hand out. This was never going to move, right? But you think he took, if he's going to take that drastic action, don't you think he tried every other way he could to move it off? And it was because there was no other way he took such a drastic action? Well, here's the deal. God the Father gives the life of his son that he might purchase you for himself. Imagine fronting up to God on Judgment Day and, and saying, and he says, why are you here unforgiven? Why are you here without the blood of my son covering you? Well, because I, I, I figured all I needed to do was just be a decent person and it would be all right. I, I figured all I needed to do was just be a good parent, work faithfully, not do too many wrong things, and it will all be all right. And God says, oh, you mean I gave the life of my son and all you needed to do was be decent? Oh, what a fool am I? Now that story's never going to happen, is it? Because what do you think the father spent eternity doing? Is there any other way except have my son die? No, there's no other way. Which means, brothers and sisters, you need to embrace deeply the truth that there's no hope for you before this God except that you come through the grace of Jesus. 
which therefore means there's no hope for any neighbour, any workmate, any family member, except that they come through the grace of God in Jesus. If there was another way, the Father wouldn't have given his Son. Do you see? There's the second point. I'll give you the third one. And the third one's a bit more complex and a bit tricky to get hold of, so bear with me. Are we doing all right for time? We're way over and that's... I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me give you the last one because this, this is the reason I'm here. <laughs> um, it, the third one is to help you in, see the centrality of the cross in life. The centrality of cross in, in life. This is tricky to get. We are born into a very impressive world. Creation is a very impressive thing. God the creator is an astonishing truth. Our experience of life is constantly keeping creation truths before us. The beauty of creation, its richness, the joy it is to live in a world that you can go and travel in and have holidays and you know, buy the water, beach, wherever you go, Barossa Valley, these things are beautiful. But heaven, get this, heaven is focused on a new thing, the cross, not creation. It was, but with the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's focused on the cross and what the cross is about and what the cross achieves, the purchasing of men and women for God. That work eclipses creation for its wonder and its centrality. When you read through the book of Revelation, Jesus is talked about being on the throne as the Lamb 28 times. The Lamb is on the throne now. Why is the Lamb on the throne? Because the sacrificed one, the sacrifice to purchase men and women for God, is on the throne of the universe. And he's on the throne of the universe as the Saviour. He's now in eternity with scars, forever marking his resurrection body, reminding the universe of his readiness to humble himself to the will of his Father at such cost to save sinners, you and me. That has to have an impact on us now. In fact... It ought to change the shape of our lives now. We grow up creation-centred. We're born into a world that helps us keep thinking that my life is about enjoying creation as much as I'm able. Travelling, holidaying, weekends. And so my life is about experiencing this creation as much as I can. Creation, Christianity can be creation-centred. This is where it gets tricky. Christianity can be creation-centred. It's all about being saved to enjoy creation. I'm saved by Jesus so that I'm now free to go to heaven and enjoy creation. Yeah, there'll be praise in this Christian's life for the cross, but it'll be an add-on. The focus of their life will be living as God's person enjoying creation that's a creation-centered christian but christianity is meant to be cross-centered with the enjoyment of creation on the side as the fill at the center is meant to be a growing awareness of the cross-centered heart of god who at heart is about seeking and saving the lost for whom the mission impulse is central whose heart is for men and women of every nation to be saved. He gave his son's life for that end. And that heart, that heart that's in God, pushes aside the wonder of creation. 
Creation is merely, in a sense, the place for this salvation work to work out. To be enjoyed, yes, but not at the centre. You're meant to see the world through the cross as greater than creation and greater than the incarnation, actually. Now, let me give you some practical applications. I've got four of them. They go very quickly because I'm almost done. But this is so important, friends. Um, if you get, cre- get cross centered Christianity, it will shape your prayers to be different. What fills your prayers' concerns? All of us pray. Even if you're here and you're not even converted, you'll pr- people pray. What do you pray about? What are the things that cause you to get on your knees and pray? Creation concerns? My holidays, my health, my work, my career, my family, creation concerns? It's not wrong to pray for those things. But our prayers are meant to be centred on cross concerns. Seeking and saving the lost. Have you noticed in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, there's six requests and every single one of them, bar one, is about the cross. Your kingdom come, hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, uh, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those, lead us not into temptation. There's only one that's a creation-centered prayer and it is, give us today our daily bread. And all the rest is about the kingdom of God. What are your prayers about? Can I urge you to see them shaped by the cross, not by creation? I'll give you the second one. How do you spend your money? Creation-centered Christians use their money to further their creation experiences, their holidays, their house, their car, their trips. Cross-centered Christians use their money to further the cause of the cross. So cross-centered Christians are thinking, how can I mobilize more finances to actually further the purposes of God in saving? Creation-centered Christians are thinking, how can I mobilize my funds to further my (laughs) holiday careers? And I'll give a little bit to church. Can I urge you to twist that right around? I'll give you the third one, church. Church is the fruit of the work of the cross. The reason Jesus came and bled and died was to create for himself a kingdom of priests who would gather together. Church is the centre of his purposes. Creation-centred Christians fit church in. Cross-centred Christians make church be the centre and fit everything else around that. I'll give you the last one. Your energy. Where does your energy go? In your creation career? Your holidays, your experiences, your... Or does it go in the work of the gospel? Where does your energy go? Friends, you guys are working hard in a church plant and that's awesome. You're uh, you're wanting to invest your time here. Can I encourage you to not grow weary of that? To more and more see it with great clarity. This is about being in touch with God's very heart who is committed to the cross at the centre to seek and save the lost who desperately need salvation. Without the cross, there is no hope for people outside. And we urgently need to actually bring that news of Jesus to everybody. How about I pray? Father, we ask, please, that you might help us be cross-centred Christians, that you might help us capture anew your heart that has glorified your Son at the centre of the universe as the one who has died to seek and save the lost. Help us be captured by that truth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.